You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Nick Lee. Happy Blue Friday, this end-of-the-week episode, coming your way courtesy of Built Bar, the delicious protein bar with less sugar, less calories, and it's gluten-free. Get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com by using the code LOCKEDON, and this week only, you can get an additional $5 off for every box of bars that you order. There are four new flavors, peanut butter banana, pineapple upside down cake, coconut pecan pie, and my new favorite, blueberry lemon. So check that out at BuiltBar.com. You can get up to $15 off just this week only with the code LOCKEDON. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. Entering the offseason, Nick, we know the discussions in Seahawks land. All the talk was about fixing the Seahawks' pass rush, which was one of the worst in the NFL last year, not just in the sack department. They were bad there, too. Second to last in the league with 28 sacks as a team. Rasheem Green led the team with just four sacks, and he had a solid second season, but still, when your team leader in the category is four sacks, that tells you all you need to know. They were near the bottom in pressure percentage, quarterback hits, pretty much every measurable that looks at getting after opposing quarterbacks. The Seahawks were horrible. They were among the league's worst. And so everybody thought they were going to be really aggressive this offseason, notably re-signing Jadevian Clowney. And yet here we are now almost turning the calendar to June and Clowney's still a free agent. None of the other top-tier free agents that were out there were signed by Seattle. They didn't trade for Yannick Ngakwe or Matt Judon or any of those available pass rushers. Instead, they took a far different approach, bringing in some mid-level veterans and using a couple draft picks to bring in some promising young defensive ends that may be able to get after the quarterback. Yeah, they might have gone with the uh, quantity over top-tier quality, perhaps. And, you know, there's there's multiple ways to to skin a cat, so to say, and and that's what's one thing where maybe instead of having one Jadavion Clowney, you get a Bruce Irvin, you get a Benson Mayoa, you get a couple top draft picks or respected draft picks in that area. You move some guys around that you already have. You hope that guys that you drafted previously improve on their on their rookie seasons and, ha- and be better sophomores. And so I, I think that's the approach they've taken is is quantity over over you know it's not say, it's not to say that these guys aren't quality, but top tier Jadavion Clowney type quality and. I think it's pretty clear that the Seahawks are probably starting to move on from the possibility of signing Jadivian Clowney. And I would argue, Corbin, the the lack of pass rush last year told two stories. One, of course, that they couldn't quite get that pass rush on the defensive line. The front seven just didn't quite generate enough pressure. But also, that had a lot to do with the coverage, the the secondary. I think that with an improved secondary, with hopefully Quentin Dunbar back there, um, that that, that could improve the coverage. And, And so... Obviously, if the quarterback has to hold the ball longer because the coverage is so much better, that's going to generate more opportunities for sacks and pressures and hits. And I think so that's that's two sides of the coin. And I think on both fronts, as a secondary, as long as Dunbar can play, and and you also have Quandre Diggs for a full season, and the quantity that they've added to the defensive line, I think that this is going to be a not only improved pass rush, perhaps a much improved pass rush. I think this is something, it's been a topic of discussion on social media recently. There are a lot of fans out there that feel like without re-signing Clowney or at least bringing in Everson Griffin, that this offseason has been a complete failure addressing the pass rush, and I just cannot agree with that. I think they have made some savvy moves. Now, 
Would bringing Clowney back or signing Griffin certainly help? Absolutely. Making one of those moves right now maybe puts this defensive line over the top, but I think even without making the splashy moves, some of the decisions they've made have kind of been low-key, really sneaky good ones. And I put out a film breakdown today on Benson Mayoa, the defensive end that come that came back to Seattle on a one-year deal the last two years with the Cardinals and Raiders, played really good football. I thought he was especially good for the Cardinals two years ago. Not a very good football team, but he was starting some games early in the year, and he was stout against the run, was getting after the quarterback, had several sacks early in the season, and then the Cardinals, for whatever reason, just kind of phased him out of the lineup, and there's a reason that staff lasted just one year, but that's beside the point. I think Mayoa, as well as Bruce Irvin and the two rookies they brought in, Daryl Taylor and Alton Robinson, all four of those players have the ability to play that Leo defensive end spot. And I just felt like last year, they did not have a player that had the juice off the edge to be able to just pin his ears back and just shoot up field and get after the quarterback. Jacob Martin was really becoming that guy for them. And I would make that trade for Clowney every single time. There's no regrets there. But Jacob Martin was a player that came on at the end of his rookie season, and they didn't replace him. At the stage they traded for Clowney, they really couldn't. They didn't bring in another player that's got that explosiveness off the edge. Shaquem Griffin, by the end of the year, was making an impact in that regard. But the first half of the year, they didn't have anybody like that that could play that Leo defensive end position. So now they've got four of them. I think you can make the argument both veterans in Mayoa as well as Irvin and the two rookies, all four of those players can play that Leo spot and have the athleticism to wreak havoc coming off the edge. And so for that reason alone, I think this pass rush is going to be much better as a whole. It's pretty clear that the Seahawks wanted to address the Leo position early and often in this offseason. And we can also maybe speculate on maybe they're hoping that guys get better that were already on the team. Rasheen Green, like you mentioned, leading the team with four sacks, he could still be only getting better. He could he can improve off of that. And and he's he's pretty he was pretty raw when he came here. And so getting another year under his belt, I think, only will make things better. And we've discussed at nauseum about LJ Collier's rookie season and perhaps his uh, avenues for improvement, whether it's position change, philosophy change or just playing, getting playing time and, and getting a not, not proper offseason because nothing about this offseason has been proper, but at least an uninjured offseason and preseason would do wonders for him because he is well-coached at a TCU, and you know that he's got the, the brains to play the defensive position as, as a five-tech end. And and also you got to look inside. I think a full season of Jaron Reed under a new contract, unsuspended hopefully, and I'm not expecting ten and a half sacks, but you know, get six, seven sacks out of him. And Corbin, you've been banging the hammer on Puna Ford's going to rush the passer this year, and so you, you, it's not just going to come from the outside. I think that with with the improvement in the middle, defensive tackles can also get after the quarterback. And even if you do slide L.J. Collier in there as as one of those interior defensive linemen, he becomes all of a sudden a plus athlete in inside that defensive line. And then who knows? Maybe they make another addition. I know there's been some smoke about Snacks Harrison. So I think that it's outside and inside. You got you got to think about it from both sides, and I really think they have improved all the way around. Maybe not to be a top tier pass rushing team, not 2013, not 2014 Seahawks, but really this is a different team. This is a Russell Wilson offensive minded Seahawks team. It's it's a bit different. You don't need to be the number one team on defense this year to win the Super Bowl. And I mean the 
the Kansas City Chiefs proved that. Obviously, they got better on defense, but they weren't a defensively just suck-the-soul dominant team. I think that the Seahawks can take that similar approach, and as long as the defense is in you know, the middle of the pack, 12 to 15 range, this team can be a very, very good team and a contender in the NFC. You know, really looking back at all of this, this has been, I mean, could it be any more of a Seahawks offseason under John Schneider? You had unexpected draft picks early, especially Jordan Brooks. Free agency, not going to break the bank. We're going to sign some quality players for less, look for bargains. This is how John Schneider does business, and it's now very evident. If you didn't think that the Frank Clark situation last year was an indicator, now look no further than Jadevian Clowney. Those two players are both outstanding football players, and John Schneider was not willing to pay the price tag that they wanted. He traded one of them to get draft picks, and then the other one remains unsigned, and that offer that Clowney wanted never happened. So it's clearly evident to me John Schneider just isn't going to pay that top price for a pass rusher. It is not a position that he is prioritizing paying top dollar for. He'll look at close to top dollar, but he is not going to approach that $20 million per year, which is another reason why trading for Ngakwe probably never was going to happen because you're going to have to give him that kind of a contract. And it's just clear to me, Schneider, that's not how he does business. There are other positions that he's more willing to pay, but he's going to look for guys that are productive that aren't going to break the bank. And they got that in Irvin. They got that in Mioa. And then they have the two rookies coming in that are obviously going to be on rookie deals, get good production from those guys. And those guys are going to become bargains very quickly. And so that's how they're building the roster. Whether it works out or not remains to be seen, but this shouldn't surprise anyone when we look back and see how Schneider's handled previous offseasons, especially since Russell Wilson got his second contract. This is just how this organization operates, and they've had a lot of success doing so, so I don't think anybody should be doubting him yet at this point with the direction they have chosen to go. Coming up next in the second quarter, we are going to wrap up our What If series. We've looked at a bunch of things that have happened throughout Seahawks history. We're going to go back to 1991. So many of you that listen to the show wanted us to break down one specific scenario from that year. We're going to do that. We're going to look at What would have happened if a certain Hall of Fame quarterback was drafted by the Seahawks that year instead of Dan McGuire? We'll be right back. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Nick Lee, 
Coming up in the third quarter, we'll be taking a look at Seattle's 2019 draft class on the defensive side of the ball. Six players, what are expectations for 2020 from this group? Now, we're going to wrap up our What If series. We've looked at so many interesting scenarios over the past couple of weeks. We looked at Peyton Manning potentially joining the Seahawks earlier this week. What what would have happened if Steve Largent isn't traded to the Seahawks for a bag of peanuts and an eighth-round pick? We've looked at a bunch of different scenarios. Last week, we had a lot of questions about the Ken Baring era. Rob Rang and I had a chance to look back at his dismal reign as an owner. Obviously, a ton of mistakes, a ton of reasons why the team didn't win many games during that era. Not all of it was Baring's fault. You can never place things like this solely on one person's plate. But there's no doubt that one draft pick set the franchise back for years. And it was in 1991. Rob and I were actually talking about this, Nick. The 1990 draft was one of the best the Seahawks have ever had. They drafted Cortez Kennedy. They brought in a good linebacker in Terry Wooden, running back Chris Warren. They had a number of quality players that they drafted early that year. And then things just went downhill, starting with that 1991 draft when they used their first-round pick on Dan McGuire. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of irony to this selection when we look back and this is really why hindsight is irrelevant. It's it's just going to make you bang your head against the table. So we know a certain quarterback from Southern Miss who was in that draft that ended up setting a record for consecutive games played the Iron Man of the NFL if you were Brett Favre. But there were a lot of red flags of course surrounding this kid coming into college and I'm not going to say I mean he kind of had a Johnny Menzel type reputation is not maybe not the same I don't know, he wasn't... I mean, the social media didn't exist back then, so it's kind of hard well, to say. Well, thank God. But yeah, yeah, maybe he doesn't have the same career. But, you know, as a 17-year-old freshman, far of infamously, famously or infamously, I guess you choose the word, um, showed up for a game against the two, uh, against Tulane hungover and vomited on the field during warm-ups and somehow managed to come off the bench and lead the Golden Eagles to a comeback victory. Is that the most Brett Favre thing in Brett Favre history? (laughs) Uh, It it absolutely is. And it really was the first story, the first chapter in his legend, if you want to look at it that way, leading his team back as a freshman, a 17-year-old freshman, coming out of the field, vomiting. Can't even vote, and he's being hung over, leading a college team to victory. It it is so Brett Favre. It's It's the perfect way to kickstart this story. Now, on a much more serious note, Three years later, Favre's drinking habits almost ended his life. He was driving near his parents' place. He spent the day with his brother Scott, a couple teammates. They were fishing off the Gulf of Mexico, and then he lost control of his vehicle, flipped it over a few times before coming to a stop next to a tree, and he ended up being rushed to the Gulfport Memorial Hospital. A bunch of injuries. He needed 30 inches of his small intestine removed. Reports later surfaced indicating he should have been arrested, but this was Brett Favre. He had celebrity status, so nothing actually happened there. So it's really ironic, as you mentioned. When we look back at Brett Favre's NFL career, there were questions coming out of college about his maturity and his durability. Scouts questioned both of those things. (laughs) He was not viewed as a sure thing at all. And the Seahawks were not the only team that were concerned about that past behavior, the car accident, because he fell all the way to the second round. The Falcons picked him at pick number 33. wasn't even a first-round pick, even though a lot of scouts admitted as a football talent he had first-round skills. His red flags, his character flags, really prevented him from being a first-round pick. And on the other hand, Dan McGuire, he didn't have any of those character concerns. This, this guy was 
as flawless of a prospect from a character perspective as you're going to find. And he wasn't coming off multiple surgeries. He's 6'8 with a rocket arm. And this really created a draft day rift. And some of this is a little bit of folklore legend because Tom Flores downplayed this for years, saying that there really wasn't a battle like this. But there were a lot of stories out there about Chuck Knox, the coach, going against Ken Baring. And from everything that I've been told, there really was tension between those two and that they wanted different players. Knox wanted Brett Favre, and Baring just became enamored by McGuire and his big arm. Took him out to, for dinner a couple times, developed a relationship with him. Ken Baring was going to get his guy, and ultimately the Seahawks decided to use that pick on McGuire. Favre didn't get picked until pick number 33, and, and we know how this went. It didn't take very long for the Seahawks to figure out Oh no, we made a mistake with this pick. Yeah, after starting just five games and throwing only two touchdown passes in five seasons with the Seahawks and, and the Dolphins, McGuire was completely out of football after the 1995 season, ironically the first season where Brett Favre wins MVP. <laughs> um, only one other first-round pick since 1980, Jim Druckenmiller of the of the uh, 49ers, finished with less touchdowns during his career. So he, he, that's, you look up the word bust, in the dictionary, Dan McGuire's picture's flat on the page right there. Yeah, if you're looking for the biggest bust in Seahawks history that actually played on the field, we know where Malik McDowell fits on the other end of the spectrum, whether fair or not. I mean, he didn't play a game for the Seahawks, so he's certainly a bust. He was a second-round pick. This was a first-round pick at the quarterback position. There's no question, as an on-field player, the biggest bust in Seahawks history with the numbers that he put up, the lack of numbers. And this was just not a good quarterback class, too. Brett Favre ended up being the jewel, but there was actually another draft pick made at the quarterback position. Todd Marinovich was picked by the Raiders later in the first round. His career got derailed very quickly by off-field issues as well. No other notable quarterbacks that were picked after Brett Favre either. So this was just not a great quarterback class in 1991. But certainly Favre ended up becoming a legend. By the time he wrapped up his career, finally, in 2010, he retired for like the 18th time. (laughs) And by that point, 508 touchdown passes, 297 consecutive games started, which is just, that's still incredible to me. And also earned first-team All-Pro and MVP honors three times apiece. So, Hall of Fame career, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. But if we're going to really play this what-if game fairly, we talked about those maturity issues that Favre had coming out of college. I think this is a player that had to land in the right spot to be able to find NFL success. And that first year in the NFL was anything but success for him. In Atlanta, the younger, wilder Favre, he drove coach Jerry Glanville nuts. His first drive, playing in a regular season game, he threw a pick six and didn't complete another pass the rest of his his season there. They ended up trading him to the Packers for a first-round pick after that rookie season. So this was kind of turning into a Josh Rosen-type scenario. We're moving on from our quarterback really quickly. But unlike Rosen, found a home in Green Bay, and even there he battled some alcohol and substance abuse issues that really nearly derailed his career. Specifically, he had an addiction to painkillers that in the middle of his career almost derailed things. Who knows if it works out for him in Seattle with the support staff that they had. Now, in a perfect world, Mike Holmgren jumps to Seattle like he did in real life, and he ends up coaching Brett Favre at some point in the late 90s in Seattle. But then we're kind of going to fantasy land a little bit. But I I guess my point is, 
that with this particular case, and I guess you could say this with every player, but specifically with this one, there's no guarantee Brett Favre becomes the Brett Favre we know today if he's drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. There's just there's no guarantee given the red flags that he had coming into the league. Well, let's have a little fun in the moment with Fantasyland and say he is pretty much as good with the Seahawks. You know, he probably would have started right away in 1991, and maybe Holmgren comes to Seattle earlier. Maybe he just likes Brett Favre and wanted to follow him to Seattle instead of Green Bay. I don't know. Um, and instead, maybe they hire Mike Holmgren instead of Tom Flores down the road after going two and fourteen. The offense was dead last. Seahawks offense was dead last in 1992. Never finished above 19th with Flores at the helm. If they draft Favre, hire a younger, more innovative offensive coach, you know, like Holmgren, who was younger at the time, um, who, who had been San Francisco's off- offensive coordinator for three seasons. Favre began his peak in 1995, his first All-Pro and MVP season. Imagine an MVP Favre with a Holmgren offense in Seattle in 1995. And Seattle the defense that they already oh. had there. Yeah, they, they went 8-8 eight and eight with a really good defense, really bad offense, and missed the wild card game by one, a wild card round by one game. Easily, I say they easily make the playoffs with Favre. Taking the place of the Chargers there, who went, who went night, who faced the nine and seven Colts. I think the Seahawks win that. Colts beat the Chiefs the next week, um, in the next round. I think the Seattle probably does the same thing and faces off against the Steelers all of a sudden in the AFC title game with a date in the Super Bowl on the line with the '90s Cowboys. I mean, sign me up for that. <laughs> and then yeah, I think it's just, a totally different. It's a totally different era when you consider. We've talked about this so many times that that defense they had in the early to mid '90s was playoff caliber, but they just didn't have a quarterback. No, and, and you know, if if they do stick with Brett Favre, that means no Rick Meyer, no John Kitna, no Warren Moon. I guess the Warren Moon one might have been a little bit of a bummer, but no Sen- he might even have no Seneca Wallace. I mean, this just speaks to the long, successful career Favre had. They survived all these guys, but, you know, and what if the crazy things happens and Favre stays in Seattle as long as he did with the Packers? For the 2005 Super Bowl run, I understand, actually, I looked it up, that Matt Hasselbeck had a very good season in 2005, and actually a way better season than Favre did. Favre was 4-12 and with the Packers and led the NFL in picks in 2005, but let's say, you know, you pair him with MVP Sean Alexander and in Holmgren system this whole time, and all of a sudden, you got Favre leading the charge against the Steelers in the Super Bowl, and Matt Hasselbeck during the Super Bowl had a 67.8 rating, 53% completion percentage, three sacks and a pick. You don't think Favre maybe could have fared a little bit better against the Steelers that day? Yeah, I think they're Super Bowl champs maybe. I mean, I know this is fantasy land, but if, if it's the same Brett Favre as the, the Packers got, maybe the Seahawks do win Super Bowl extra large or XL. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's just Well, think about land. the receivers the Seahawks ended up having. I mean, Brian Blades was in his prime yeah, when Jackson. they made that pick. And then, yeah, later down the line, Daryl Jackson, maybe Joey Galloway ends up yeah. being in Seattle a little longer, which, of course, that has ripple effects because they don't get the first-round picks for him. But, I mean, there's so many what-ifs we can throw around, so many dominoes that would have changed if Brett Favre was drafted by the Seahawks. If it ends up working out, then – we might be looking at CenturyLink Field a little bit differently today. There might be several banners hanging up for Super Bowl championships, and this is a far different situation. Ken Baring's reign looks far different. He might have been the owner a lot longer if Brett Favre ends up coming in. But, you know, it's one of those things that it's a lot of fun to discuss, a lot of fun to look back at. But I'm sure Seahawks fans, you know, Matt Hasselbeck was a pretty darn good quarterback, and obviously they eventually got Russell Wilson. I think the last 20 years have been pretty good to the franchise. While that would have been an interesting, a fascinating scenario to unfold with Favre under center, 
I think that the franchise, the fans probably are pretty pleased how things end up turning out, even though the 90s weren't very fun with that team struggling to find any relevance in the AFC West. Coming up in the third quarter, we're going to come back to the present here. We're going to look at that 2019 draft class. We already did this a few weeks ago with the offensive draft picks. Now we're going to look at the, at the defense, LJ Collier and company. What are some realistic expectations for this group heading into their second season? We'll be right back. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks Podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Nick Lee. A few weeks back, we started looking at the 2019 draft class. This group of players, they made 11 selections. 10 of those players are still on the team we started looking at the offensive players earlier. Now we're going to swing to the defensive players heading into their second season. Talking some realistic expectations. What can we expect out of this group of players? We're going to start off with LJ Collier, who we actually already talked about a little bit in the first quarter. Potentially moving to defensive tackle some could help him break out a bit in his second season. But it was a forgettable rookie campaign. Seven healthy scratches, 11 games dressed. Just three tackles in his first season. Very underwhelming production for a first-round pick that unfortunately got set back behind the eight ball by missing all of training camp and all of the preseason with an ankle injury. He just couldn't get caught up and find a way into Seattle's rotation last season. And in order to avoid the bust label, the dreaded bust label, Collier not only needs to find himself a role on the 2020 defense but he needs to make a significant contribution fair or not i mean he'll he'll be compared to the players that the seahawks passed over uh, i i keep saying they i'm not saying that montez sweat would have had the same rookie season had he been in seattle but i was pounding we both were expecting and hoping the seahawks take montez sweat who went to the redskins and ended up having seven sacks last year and played in all 16 games for the Redskins. And so that's that's going to be fair or not. It is going to be a comparison between the two. It's not going to be a perfect comparison. But, you know, and so 2020 is a big season for Collier. Whether or not he switches positions, which there's not a ton of thing, not a ton of the Seahawks coaches and brass saying it's going to happen. But he either way, he needs to find a, a role and start having his numbers look like Sweats, Montez Sweats. And, and so for him... Of course, the pass rush. I mean, it's not like they didn't need him last year. They really, really needed him last year, and he just wasn't there for the pass rush. So you got to first start with the sacks, the pass rushing numbers, the quarterback hits. You got to start seeing those trickle up. I think that that's the front. The first and foremost is find a role and stick with it and make a significant contribution, especially as a pass rusher. Yeah, that's going to be the first key. And he's never been a dominant pass rusher anyway, but he had decent sack numbers his last couple of years at TCU. And he's a surprisingly nimble player with good counter moves for being a bigger bodied five tech defensive end. But I think that's the real key here now with Quentin Jefferson being gone heading to Buffalo. There's actually not great depth at that base defensive end position. We talked early in the show about all the additions they've made. Those players look like Leo defensive ends. They haven't really added somebody that fits that five-tech mold. And so I think the organization is going into this year feeling Rasheem Green made big steps last year. We're looking forward to him doing that again in year three. We think LJ Collier is going to have a similar jump. Because if you remember, Nick, Rasheem Green had a pretty disappointing rookie season too. He only had one sack and he was a healthy scratch for a bunch of games. 
he had an ankle injury that caused him to miss a, a large chunk of the regular season in the middle of the year. And so there are a lot of parallels there different types of players, but certainly if he's healthy and he's able to produce in training camp, get some valuable preseason reps, then LJ Collier could be a far greater contributor this year for the Seahawks. And I do think the moving him inside, at least in third down situations, letting him be an interior pass rusher, I think plays to his strengths more and it's going to help their depth a bit in those interior tackle positions as well. So I'm more optimistic about Collier than some people are. I I think last year he just was in a really bad situation where as a first round pick, he just missed so much practice time and all those valuable preseason reps. And he just simply could not recover from that. Starting with a fresh slate. Now he comes in. I think he's got a chance to bounce back nicely and they need him to in year two. Now let's talk about another player that needs to bounce back a little bit. Now Marquise Blair, unlike Collier, we saw flashes of why the Seahawks used an early draft pick on him. The three starts that he had in the middle of the year, he made some impact plays. He had a nice pass deflection against the Ravens in that game, middle of the season. Had a forced fumble against the Falcons. We saw some big hits on special teams, but the coaching staff simply did not trust him with his assignments and his playbook. And if you don't, if you want to be in Pete Carroll's doghouse and not be on the field, don't get your assignments down. And he's another player that I think part of it was that he missed practice time in off-season workouts and training camp battling some injuries. So he has to stay healthy as well. And I think that will allow him to take his game to the next level and maybe even push Bradley McDougal to bed at that strong safety position. I think that the Seahawks are going to groom Blair as the heir apparent to Bradley McDougal. And and that could start, like you mentioned, in 2020. Maybe, maybe mid-season or heaven forbid McDougal go down, they're going to count on Marquise Blair to be that next guy. And the 2020 safety tandem is pretty set right now with Quandre Diggs and Bradley McDougal, but that certainly could change with injuries and and with poor play. Um, He also was a quality special teams contributor, and I think he'll continue that this year um, as long as he's not starting. And and I don't think he's going to ride the bench or anything like that. I I do expect him to get some, even with a quality and healthy Quandre Diggs and Bradley McDougal. I do expect him to see on the field on defense, at least occasionally, you know, third safety or an extra defender in the box. Because one thing we do know about Marquise Blair, he is a heat-seeking missile who is fearless in the box and hit it and He'll just smack his nose in there. Yeah, he will smack you. And he he's he comes from he's well coached defensively from Utah. They know how to hit. Trust me, my teams get hit plenty by Utah, and they they know how to hit. They know how to they know how to make you feel miserable as a ball carrier. And, and Marquise Blair absolutely fits that bill. Well coached, and he will hit you. And I, I think. As long as Quandre Diggs and Brendan McDougald are playing well and healthy, I don't see a huge uptick in a role for Blair this year. I don't see him you know, starting 10, 12 games this year, but he can certainly play all 16 games, Get a, maybe get a pick or two as a, in a sub package or, or in, in different scenarios. But I, I don't see a huge jump in production as far as you know numbers go just because as long as the two safeties are there healthy, I don't see a huge starting role for him. But it does not mean that he won't contribute significantly. I think he's going to see a fair number of snaps. I'd expect that big nickel role, kind of like what they did with Akeem King for the last couple of years against tight ends. I, you know, Maybe if you want an extra guy up in the box as a run defender, as we mentioned, that's a strength for Marquise Blair. I think the thing that's encouraging, I wrote an article about this today, he's been working with Cam Chancellor on the practice field in this offseason there's been some pictures come out recently so he is seeking advice from 
the enforcer himself, one of the best safeties of his generation, a player that Marquise Blair plays a lot like. He's much lighter at under 200 pounds, but he plays much bigger than that. And so Cam Chancellor, he sees that potential in this kid and he's working with him. So that's a really good sign in my opinion. This is still a guy I think the organization views as a long-term starter at one of those safety spots. I think they're going to give him every chance to really push Bradley McDougal. And maybe by middle of the season, as you mentioned, Blair's going to find his way into the lineup. They got to see what this kid is capable of playing consistent snaps defensively. Third round pick, another Utah player, linebacker Cody Barton. He played in all 16 games last year, and he started a couple. He actually started both playoff games for Seattle as well. He had a fumble recovery, had a sack against the Eagles in the postseason, and really started to come around late. My biggest issue with him in the games he played last year was his run defense off the edge. He had a lot of trouble playing that Sam linebacker spot in that capacity, but on the flip side, he might have been the best coverage linebacker that the Seahawks had last year. You could see that former safety background for him. Now, his situation's a little bit clouded with Jordan Brooks coming in as the first-round pick out of Texas Tech. Looks like Brooks is going to have a chance to start. You've still got K.J. Wright there. Wondering where Cody Barton fits into this mix with all the bodies they've added at the linebacker position. It is very much in the air um, as far as having a significant role in 2020 outside of special teams. And Pete Carroll uh, really complimented him on his his willingness and ability on special teams. He played over 300 snaps on special teams. And I would imagine um, unless something drastic happens between now and week one, that'll continue. That he'll, he'll make significant contributions on special teams. You know, he got 23 tackles and the quarterback hits. He, he, he was productive here and there. Yeah, I agree with run with run defense on the edge. He, he lacks that, that containment awareness, that, that gap, integrity, gap integrity awareness. But he's got some serious competition for sure. And I think he's going to be behind the eight ball, maybe not necessarily to make the roster, because I'm not sure his roster spots in, in, in jeopardy because we know the Seahawks will keep him around as long as he contributes on special teams like he has. But as far as carving out a role on the on the defense on the on the eleven players on defense, I don't see how he gets in because you have the Jordan Brooks who probably is the heir apparent to KJ Wright and Bobby Wagner's not going anywhere. What's interesting though is where Jordan Brooks was weak. His biggest weakness is coverage, and and that was that was my main gripe as well as we're drafting a player that is going to be behind K.J. Wright with coverage issues in the first round. That was my big issue with, with Jordan Brooks. I think he's a fine football player, and I'm, I've kind of warmed up to him. But I think Cody Barton compliments Jordan Brooks. I think Cody Barton has those coverage skills. If we could give Jordan Brooks Cody Barton's coverage skills, we have ourselves a very darn good linebacker. So it is going to be kind of cloudy to see where Cody Barton fits in. I just I don't I don't see him an uptick in significant snaps for him like like Blair because there is just so much talent ahead of him as far as veterans and now rookies. I think he's still in their long-term plans. I think Cody Barton is a starting NFL linebacker, and he showed a lot of promise out there last season. But as long as KJ's there, and you've got Bobby Wagner, and now Jordan Brooks in the equation, I've heard from Bruce Irvin that he's going to play some Sam linebacker. So you've got all these bodies there. It's just going to be difficult for him this year, unless there's injuries or if Brooks just isn't ready, then maybe Cody Barton is going to be able to step in. We can't undersell the fact that he's got a year of experience under his belt and an off-season program, which Jordan Brooks does not have. But still, 
I think this year it's going to be a, it's going to be tough for him to get on the field defensively. I still think he is a long-term starter, though. Maybe at that Sam linebacker spot. Maybe it's at the weak side linebacker spot. We don't know how this is all going to play out. I think he's still got a bright future. Now the Seahawks have three other draft picks they picked defensively on day three. Ugo Amadi played in all 16 games last year, 17 tackles and a fumble recovery. Late in the year, he took over as their slot corner, which last year meant you might play like five snaps a game because they were playing base defense more than any team in the NFL. But we saw some good plays from him. He almost had a pick six against the Carolina Panthers and got called back. So there were some positive plays. He was one of their best special teams players. I still think it would be it would behoove the Seahawks to bring in a veteran to compete against him. I, I don't just give Ugo Amadi that slot corner job going into year two. Make him earn it. And I think at that point, there is a lot of promise for this kid uh, to end up being a pretty solid slot corner in the NFL. Yeah, I think he does project that way. And and he was selected for his versatility. And, and Carroll immediately put him to work on multiple spots. And he, he started off camp last year, I remember, saying yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna do too much we're gonna let him ease into it then all of a sudden he's playing like two or three positions and and mini camps and and, and preseason workouts and so they obviously think very highly of Amadi's versatility and he did get more slot corner snaps when as the winter wore on and I think that there is a, a weird scenario where with Quentin Dunbar hopefully uh, opposite of Shaquille Griffin where does Trey Flowers go maybe that's maybe they see him as competition for Ugo Amadi I'm not sure Trey Flowers is a great fit at the slot corner position I think Ugo Amadi fits better with what they want to do with well, slot Dunbar corners. can play the slot and Dunbar can play the slot so maybe if Trey Flowers has a huge camp and, and they just can't keep him off the field maybe they may move Dunbar over there so I think that there is some internal competition that that the Seahawks view for the slot corner position with Ugo Amadi and with, with him they they did I yeah he had great special teams so I really think that he can take that slot corner position and run with it is he going to be the best slot corner in the game right off the bat of course not but I, I think that he can improve on the fly and and he's shown a willingness to learn different different spots and I think that they're going to find a spot for him I actually think that he's going to see a significant bump in snaps this year maybe just because I don't think that they can move any more towards base defense. So naturally, they should move more towards having a, a more a slot corner in, in their defense moving forward. I think you'll see more snaps for him just as a natural consequence to that. Two other players that were picked by the Seahawks on defense in that 2019 draft that didn't make as much of an impact. Ben Burkirvin, the linebacker out of Washington, did suit up for all 16 games. He made eight tackles. He recovered a fumble early in the season and then really didn't hear too much from him the rest of the year. He was a solid special teams player. If you knew who he was with the limited snaps that he had, usually that's not a good sign with special teams players. Now, if he had a big hit or something, that's one thing. But, you know, missed tackles or, you know, not being able to wrap up on guys... Uh, getting penalized, different stuff like that. That's usually how special teams players get noticed by fans. So he had a solid first season, but we talked about all that depth at linebacker. You want to talk about a player that's going to be in a really tough spot. I don't think that he's off the roster necessarily, but he's going to have to scratch and claw to make that 55-man roster with all the pieces that they've added. Drafting Brooks, you've still got Barton there. Shaquem Griffin is a player that has the explosive speed that Ben Burkirvin does not have, the ability to rush off the edge. There's a lot of factors working against him. That said, he's a tackling machine. He's very coachable. The rest of the veteran linebackers really like him. So 
He's another player coming to year two. If he gets stronger, maybe he's a guy that surprises a bit at camp. And then the real wild card here, Nick, DeMarcus Christmas, the defensive tackle out of Florida State. We didn't get to see him play a preseason snap last year. He was on the pup list the entire season. We've talked about this a few times. Behind Puna Ford and Jaron Reed, the Seahawks currently right now have three games of regular season experience on the depth chart at defensive tackle. Brian Monet has three games under his belt. DeMarcus Christmas hasn't played in any. The other two undrafted free agent rookies obviously have not played a down or a practice in the NFL. And so if they don't go out and add somebody, I still think they're going to. As we've mentioned, Damon Harrison's the name that has been thrown around. There's a couple other solid veterans out there Seattle could sign. But if they don't, then DeMarcus Christmas is suddenly one of the most important players on your defense, at least from a depth perspective. He's going to have to be able to step in and play some snaps that nose tackle position and defend the run. And you just don't know what you're going to get because we didn't even get to see what he's made of in the preseason last year. And so we're just going to be starting from scratch. He's basically still a rookie. Yeah, I kind of view him in the same light as LJ Collier in in the fact that he really was at a disadvantage from the start with with some injuries before he could even get his rookie season started. And I'm like I mentioned last week, the uh, there is a rain, Mount Rainier crevasse-sized chasm between Puna Ford, Jaron Reed, and the rest of the defensive tackles right now. And if they do not make a signing, it's almost do or die for Demarcus Christmas to come and, and make it and and get that third defensive tackle spot. Because if he doesn't, if it's if it's going to be an issue of if not now when. And I know it's a six-round pick, so it's not going to be this catastrophic franchise-changing thing if he doesn't, because lots of lot, six-round picks get cut all the time. But this is a real great opportunity for Christmas. He should be salivating at the at, and hoping that the Seahawks don't sign a veteran defensive tackle, because this is his ultimate opportunity to seize not just the third spot, but he will get significant playing time with that. And and he's you know he was a four-year starter for the Seminoles, 24 years old. He's he's got that experience, and I just think the chips are falling just right for him to to make this roster and, and carve out a significant role if they don't make a signing. And and we're just gonna have to wait and see if he actually does that because this is it is it gonna be a do or die time for Christmas. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee fifty one. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up next Monday, Rob Rang and I are going to start kicking off our Top 100 Seahawks series. This is the thing we look forward to every offseason. We've been putting together some stuff the past few days, getting really fired up about this. And, of course, we're going to give our listeners the chance to get some input on those rankings as well. Enjoy your weekend. Go Hawks.